I'm Dave Laird. And I'm Matt Booker. And I'm Chris Ayers, and I'm here to spelunk the great concavity. Or is it convexity? I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I like convexity. I like concavity. Yeah, you guys would. You're Americans. <laughs> Bastards. <laughs> North America, baby. <laughs> awesome. Well, welcome, everybody, to The Great Concavity, and we are joined tonight by our very fourth guest, Chris Ayers, who is a visual artist out of... Uh, the United States. So we're continuing on with that theme. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. Awesome, man. So Chris, uh, for people, for listeners out there who may not have heard of you or seen your work before, tell us a bit about what you've done with Infinite Jest, because you've done some really cool stuff worth talking about. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I first read Infinite Jest in 2011 in the spring. So uh, my relationship with the book isn't, doesn't go as far back as you guys. But um I think the best thing an artist can ask for is inspiration, you know, and I just, I totally got it from that book. Hmm. And I, I was about 90% of the way through the book, and I just hit on this idea of uh, first illustrating all the film posters from M. Camden's uh, filmography. Mm-hmm. Um, it started, started there, and then it kind of ballooned out into just illustrating um, all these other aspects from, from the world, like, you know, Whataburger uh, tennis poster. That kind of stuff, even the Onan seal, you know, all these um, just really quirky and weird images that uh, Wallace describes in Infinite Jess, and I just wanted to see it come to life. Yeah, and and the Onan logo actually, I have the my wife bought me the coffee mug of that a couple of years ago, so I drink coffee out of your mug like on a semi regular basis. That's great, it's awesome. <laughs> so thank you for that. You probably put a dollar or two in my pocket with that. That's nice. Yeah, that's awesome. So, uh, where is your work posted at? Where can people find it, Chris? So maybe if they're if you're listening right now, you can you can just Google it right now, and then you can follow sort of follow along as you're listening. Uh, yeah. So um, it's poryorkentertainment.tumblr.com. If you just Google Poor York Entertainment, you'll probably find it. Yes. I also have uh, an Instagram page with a lot of that work also posted on there. Yeah, awesome. So you were at the second annual David Foster Wallace Conference in Bloomington, Normal, Illinois this year, and you gave a presentation of the movie posters. You want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um, yeah. I didn't know what to expect out of the conference, for one thing. Um, yeah, I know it's a little bit about the same size as it was last year. Um, yeah. So they put me on the lunchtime uh, speaking slot. I, I didn't know if that was going to be good or bad, if people were going to be... <laughs> You know, preoccupied <laughs> with their food, not paying attention. I didn't realize how big of an audience it was going to be. Um, yeah, I, I anticipated like presenting to like twenty or thirty people, and it was seemed to be almost everyone who was in attendance there. But I, um, yeah, just put on the work up on the on the big screen there and kind of talked my way through it. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Also, yeah, one thing great. they don't tell you um, when you're presenting at lunch at a lunchtime, you have to uh, decide whether you're not you're going to eat before you present. <laughs> <laughs> which I decided to do that. And about 10 seconds before I was called up there, I was like, I think I might need to go to the bathroom and vomit. But yeah. I didn't. I'm very proud that I didn't. <laughs> yeah. I had an audience of, a, I think, around 30 for my presentation. But you had, because there was like three or four different sessions, and so people had to choose which one they went to. But you had everybody, so that must have been extra nerve-wracking. Oh, yeah. I didn't, I didn't realize <laughs> that going into it. This is just a complete yeah. aside, but I found on the back, uh, reading the back of the uh, program, it says, like, featured speaker Chris Ayers. I'm like, 
No one told me that before I showed up. <laughs> that's, uh, that's awesome. <laughs> so anyhow, yeah, I just um, I'm not going to rehash the whole presentation here, but you know, yeah, yeah, talk about yeah. some of the, the pieces, I guess. Um, but I will say this: when I started, when I started the project, um, I didn't know anybody else in my life, my personal life, who had read Infinite Jest, hmm. and I ended up buying about seven or eight copies for friends. Because I just wanted somebody to talk about it with, and a couple of friends tried. They didn't. I don't. Th- I think one of them made like maybe page three hundred or something. And <laughs> yeah. um, so part of part of starting the project for me was just a way to talk about the work online. Um, mm-hmm. I wasn't aware of the Infinite Summer reading group at that point. I guess there were forums I could have gone on, you know, and, and talked with. But um, right. I also was, you know, very much an amateur. It's you know coming to Wallace's work, and I was afraid I was going to put something up there, and people were going to you know call it out for being false or you know just have problems with it i I didn't even know what to expect and the the response has been really great so far yeah Um, i've I've had conversations with people from all over the world um just writing and you know finding my work on the blog and stuff that's been a really great experience yeah well it helps too that your work is like absolutely fantastic and so funny and and like right on the nose oh thank you the stuff that's up there right now chris is the entries for the 20th anniversary contest to redesign the cover of Infinite Jest. And you posted your own entry, and we just recently, I don't know, a week ago or so, found out what was the winning entry. But I, I want to step back and say, what was your reaction whenever you saw that they would be having a sort of fan art contest? Because that's like right in your wheelhouse, right? Like the fan art. And then they said, oh, fan art contest for the, the cover of Infinite Jest. What was your reaction when they posted that? <laughs> um, I, I first I have to admit it's it's actually kind of strange to have a contest like that uh, to design a book cover, especially something for as high profile as Infinite Jest. And outside of our small little community of Wallace fans, it wasn't really promoted that much. Like I couldn't, mm-hmm. if you Googled it, you couldn't find a whole lot about it. Right. I think I found an Entertainment Weekly article somebody had posted on the, their website on a blog. Um, mm-hmm. So I, it was it was kind of strange. Um, I, I definitely wanted to do it. I was sort of skeptical in a way because, you know, book designer is a real job. Um, I'm not a book designer. Somewhere out there, there's a guy who's spent his entire life designing books and, you know, absolutely loves Infinite Jest. And it's probably a little myth that he didn't get to or she didn't get to design the cover for this <laughs> as part of their job. Well, the reward was a thousand dollars and that's not really what you would pay. I think a freelance book designer either no. to design the cover. So <laughs> it was very much set up to be amateur. Yeah, well, here's in the design community, you kind of frown upon these uh, crowdsource contests in a way, right? Because they're soliciting work from, I don't know how many people submitted. I mean, I've seen about 10 or 12 uh, submissions, but you're, submi- you're soliciting work from a lot of people, you know, um, mm-hmm. working for free and, you know, only paying out $1,000 to one of those that you choose. Um, yeah, so that's it's cheap little, labor. Yeah, it's a little ethically dubious just in the design community, <laughs> that kind of... Um, but you know, I think they they realized the the fervor and the, of this fan base, right? Yeah. Who would really want to do it? I mean, you had Corey Baldoff on your show a couple of episodes ago, and you know, yeah. she had posted or uh, someone had written these rules about being a happy creative person. One of them was never enter a design contest. You know. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> but she still did it, and so did I. So. And yeah. I've got Corey's design up on my blog too, and really loved it. Yeah, it's great. So all of the different covers that got entered into the contest, we got, like you said, maybe 10 or 12 to look at. And I was really interested in 
the way that some of them represented different angles in the book because you know we've seen different fan covers in the past and we've seen foreign book covers mm-hmm. and a lot of the ones that worked well were type treatments only which f- <clears throat> fans don't often do and then the ones that the fans did and turned into your blog it seemed like there were just a really wide variety of them which ones of them really surprised you um so there was one that was just a, a complete typography solution which was very interesting um right that was uh from aggie toppins right that that was a very interesting yeah I, I really love it It looked very modern you know and sort of yeah it's a cool one um just 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 type and some some basic shapes there was okay there was one from matt zucchero um let's see what this is i don't even know what this is it's a uh, cantor's diagonal proof which is it's just numbers um it's mm-hmm. like a field of numbers it looks kind of like a crossword puzzle yeah and i was like well or um word search right and i'm sure that's some kind of math that i don't understand but i was drawn <laughs> to that that was something i never would have thought of i i like that one a lot yeah that's cool it's very, very unusual you know mm-hmm. um what I thought was interesting there is several, if you look at the UK edition of Infinite Jest and, and really the three that we have, the original hardcover, the original paperback, and then the 10th anniversary paperback, you know, all three of those have clouds and then the f- second UK edition has clouds, but the first UK edition is really just type and the German edition and French edition are just type. So I, I was sort of leaning towards one of the ones that was just type. I, I would have been fine with that if they had gone with that, uh, like just type. Um, but w- what was your idea about the ones that came in that were you know, completely surprising or off the wall? Um, I, it's just, I don't know. This is a hard project, honestly, conceptually, um, because there's so many different directions you can go in. And they were all somewhat different, you know, it's, it's, I feel like you either have to go very simple with with like just type or you have to throw everything on, on the page. (laughs) You know, it's like hard to zero in on one thing and say that that, that is the most important image. Hmm. So I, I, one of the reasons I was started soliciting all these designs is because I felt like they were never going to see the light of day. There was going to be a lot of great work and they were going to choose one winner and publish that. And no one would ever see the other, the other, the other artwork. And as much time as I spent on this thing, designing my own, I thought, you know, this would be great to see what everyone else has come up with. So I just started going out mm-hmm. to Twitter and Instagram and, and finding um, anyone who'd um, hashtag Infinite Jess, you know, and I just contacted everyone, asked them if I could post it on the blog. That's awesome. And your design has the tennis theme, and there were a couple that had tennis. Corey Baldoff has uh, some some of the tennis theme going on. And there were some other fan art before with tennis on there, but I, I think it's really hard to illustrate a lot of the, you know, the AA side of the novel. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you've also got this part about the entertainment itself with the VHS tape. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is a lot going on in the book. I, I thought a really interesting one also was the one that is just Madame Psychosis. Yeah, the veiled face. Yeah. Just the veil. I like that one. I mean, I think that that would have been an interesting choice as the cover of the book because people who hadn't read the book would be like, well, is this really the same infinite jest, you know, that (laughs) had the clouds on it for you? Is this the one they were talking about? And, you know, the reality is whoever's going to read infinite jest and pick it up for the first time is probably not going to do it because of the cover. 
they're gonna right. they're gonna do it because they've heard a lot of a lot about it. Maybe because of the end of the tour, you know, sparked some interest this year. Yeah. So you know, as a designer, you kind of know that like you want a great cover, you want it to be intriguing, but for most people, it's probably not going to matter that much. Hmm. Well, the first cover, you know, with the clouds, I, I was sort of ambivalent about when it first came out when I saw it and it had a weird marketing campaign with it with those postcards. Have you ever seen those like teaser I've, postcards that came with it? I've heard about them, but I've never seen them before. Yeah, I hadn't seen it either. Do you actually have a photo of it or anything in the archives? Yeah, yeah. I have I have photos of them. I could dig them up and I sort of know the woman that came up with this marketing plan at Little Brown and it was a weird thing. Like you couldn't do this anymore. Like this is before the internet and you actually had to send postcards to bookstores Mm -hmm. and the postcards said things like infinite possibilities, infinite reading opportunities, infinite. (laughs) And then it like, they launched the title with the last one, infinite jest and had this, you know, and I guess clouds sort of convey infinity, but I didn't really make that connection at first glance. Well, I, actually, you might you guys might find this interesting. Um, not that long ago, I was browsing Instagram, uh, the Infinite Jest hashtag, and I found mm-hmm. a photo that was the cover of the first edition, and um, it was from the guy who had designed it, a guy named Steve Snyder. Um, his Instagram mm-hmm. account is account is uh, Steve Snyder NYC, and uh, he captioned it. it. Says, "I designed this cover back in 1996. Love seeing it in the movie, The End of the Tour. Great movie." Um, so I commented on his photo and I asked him, um, well, it seems like a lot of the, the additions came, that came after used that cloud motif. And what do you think about it? And he's, he says, at least they kept some relationship to the original design. Uh, maybe they should have stuck with it and made it iconic, like catcher in the rye. Um, hmm. he says, I was also the art director at the time and fought, fought for that, uh, to no avail. I guess he's referring to the, the, the uh, paperback editions that came after. And this is I ended up commissioning the first paperback edition. So maybe they'll go back to it for the 20th anniversary since it appeared in the movie, the end of the tour. Hmm. And they didn't. Yeah, they, and they, didn't. they did not. But it is interesting. <laughs> like, there, yeah, like you said, there's a lot of editions that use the cloud. It's sort of a, an, I don't want to say cop out, but it's kind of an easy thing because it's, it's such a hard design problem. Well, there is a, a textual reference to it as well, which is in, um, in it, not in In It House, in ETA. In the headmaster's house, uh, what is there's a there's a character. What's her name? She walks sideways. She's like a oh crap. yeah. She uh, she's be a helicopter reporter. I, I damn it. What's her name? She um she's like yeah, the, I know who you're talking she's about. like the office secretary, the waiting to get into uh, yeah. the, the the headmaster's yeah. office and Tavis's office. And yeah, in, she's really cool. In their waiting room is that's what the wallpaper is. is clouds on a blue sky yeah oh yeah that's right (laughs) and so i i know that that they at least connected it to the text from there um one other story about that so steve snyder like you said was the art director and he designed the cover but after they design it you know it gets handled by a couple of assistant designers and design assistants and stuff as it goes through production and production assistants and the one of the production assistants on that cover at Little Brown 1996 was Biz Stone, who went on to co-found Twitter. And he's one of the three co-founders of Twitter. Oh, that's some trivia. With Jack Dorsey and 
uh, Evan Williams and Biz Stone. And Biz Stone claims responsibility for screwing up William T. Volman's name on the blurb on the first edition. So on the back cover of the first edition of Infinite Jest, there's a blurb from William T. Volman, and Volman is misspelled. Like one L or something? One, one N. <laughs> and so that that's how you, I mean it's really handy because then you can identify a true first printing of the first edition oh yeah uh, because they corrected it after the first printing and the subsequent printings don't have that error even in the hardcover oh that's um, too bad I'll have to check mine I think I have a second printing in the first edition oh it's it's pretty interesting that one there is such an easy you know key to identifying the first printing but it was, you know, made by a young kid at the time who went on to found this, you know, huge corporation. <laughs> so, so you can make typos and still become a billionaire. See? Boom. It's, yeah. There are second chances in this world. Um, <laughs> oh, it's Lateral Alice Moore. Her name's just Lateral name. Alice Moore. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. No problem. So we have a new cover for the 20th anniversary edition. Um, Chris, you just posted it on your site recently. It's by Joe Walsh. And so if you haven't seen that yet, you can go check it out. It's uh, just scroll down for like one entry on Poor York Entertainment. And there it is. How would you describe it, Chris? Um, it's pretty simple, honestly, um, which yeah. I kind of expected, you know, when you happen to choose the winner of this contest. It's probably simple. It's going to be better. I, I'm sort of ambivalent about it. I don't think it's great. I don't think it's bad. Um, yeah. I, I saw a lot more inspired and exciting stuff that was submitted. So it was a bit of a surprise when they went with this. Um, yeah so there's a lot of white space on it infinite jest is in red and then there's kind of like a it looks like a tv with a large eye on it and then some kind of like glow coming out of the tv but it's a very simple kind of crayon ish drawing what do you think that is what do you think they're going for with that well i mean the tv is obvious having to do something with the entertainment or just entertainment in general i'm not sure exactly what yeah. the eye is it's a bit like the all-seeing eye of like either on the American one dollar bill, the Illuminati or something, <laughs> or the Eye of Sauron, or nineteen eighty four. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, stylistically, it feels like it belongs in the seventies or the eighties. I think um, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel necessarily modern like some of the other designs did. It doesn't it doesn't, it doesn't even really feel like the nineties that you know the era it came out. So I'm not sure. I'm sure I'm still gonna buy it because um, you know I'm a completist. But <laughs> same here. Yeah. You know, one thing that struck me about it is that it's white. And like I say, the first UK edition was white. And the German edition is white. The French edition is white. The Portuguese Brazilian edition is mostly white. And the Pale King was white. And the DFW Reader is white. Like the, this white trend, you know, mm. I see on my bookshelf as it sort of evolving from the blue of infinite jest and the blue sky towards this white uh this this kind of white theme you know it it would have been really striking in some way you know if they had gone with like a bright green cover or a bright orange cover or something but uh, it's Mm -hmm. almost like you someone earlier mentioned catcher in the rye like uh steve snyder maybe mentioned that but the, the catcher in the rye thing it's totally white right and so i think a lot of iconic books go for that you know, and I'm thinking that multiple editions of Ulysses that are white with just text. Um, but there's also, you know, when I worked in book publishing, I would hear this occasionally from sales teams that they didn't like white covers because when they shipped in boxes and stuff, they could get dirty and they could, oh, get, yeah. they could oh, yeah. get damaged or they could get dented or they, you know, when they rub on each other, some 
color can come off. So a lot of the sales team didn't like white because they generated more returns. Well, I understand hmm. that. Also, in my copy of The Pale King, you know, has my handprints and sweat all over it, the white cover. <laughs> like, it's it's so beat up. I, I used to really care about keeping my books in pristine condition. Now I don't care, you know, but, yeah. but I do notice that is a bit of a problem. No, I actually bought a separate Pale King hardcover because the first one that I got, had got so beat up. I mean, it was like... You know, when you read the New York Times in print and your hands are covered in that black ink, like the cover of it looked like I had been reading the New York Times. Yeah. <laughs> so I got another one that I tried not to mess with as much and just left it alone. So that whatever's beyond completist, that's where I'm at now. So have you seen, Chris, have you seen some of the foreign editions of Infinite Jest, like the, the covers of them the that they used? Yeah. yeah, the Brazilian Portuguese one is beautiful. I actually tried to get yeah, that. It's good. I, I'm, I don't really know how to go on it. Uh, Amazon Brazil and order that. But I was talking to um, someone we met at the conference, Anna Carolina Warner. She put me in touch with yeah. the guy who translated it. And Caetano. Yeah. yeah and he says, he, uh, he says, she was on my panel. Yeah. And he says like, well, I'll just send you one. Like I, I offered to pay for it. And he's like, I'll send you one. Oh, cool. I still don't have it, <laughs> but I, I covet <laughs> that book. It is so beautiful. That's my favorite of all the international editions. Uh, I have it. He sent me one. Not to brag, but <laughs> okay. I have it. Well, so if he's listening, Chris is still... Caetano Galindo, <laughs> you're on the hook. I'm willing to pay for it. <laughs> um, also, I really like the cover of the Italian version. It's still a cloud motif, but it's sort of like purple, I think. And oh, yeah. I, I like that one a lot. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's an interesting book in that when it came out, you know, uh, Wallace has two other Italian publishers one is the Random House version of Italy, Mondadori, and the other one is uh, Minimum Facts, who was founded by my good friend Marco and Martina. Marco, you know, went out of his way to court Wallace, and he has these photos of him changing his shirt to get Wallace's bandana and stuff. And they did not get the rights to publish Infinite Jest. It went to this publisher called Fandango. But it was a big deal when it came out in Italy, and Wallace has a huge following there, and they had a big release party for Infinite Jest. And Fandango somehow got, they did like a live reading of the book, which took like four days of just reading it out loud. <laughs> and, wow. and, you know, they do that occasionally with like Moby Dick or Ulysses, but they got Wallace to um, read the last line of the book in Italian over the telephone and held it up to the microphone. It was really cool. <laughs> wow. wow. That's wild. So uh, there's also a Spanish edition, which I think is really weird. It has like a picture of four people, like uh, a mother and a father and a daughter and a son on the cover, which really doesn't relate to the book at all. <laughs> have you seen that cover? Like La Broma Infinita or whatever? I don't think I have, no. Yeah, I think I've seen it. it just, it's like it's like an old like forties looking. Yeah, or like fifties or something. It just looks so out of touch. Like it's oh, yeah. it gets around the idea that there is a family involved, but there's no daughter in it really. <laughs> and Mario's like not really depicted. Right. It's yeah. just so weird. Um, the French edition just came out. Is that correct? Right. All type cover. Yeah. Pretty straightforward. Yeah, it's just all type. Yeah. It's it's nice though. It looks really clean, and you know, like Chris said earlier, people who are buying that book are not buying it because it has a family on the cover. Or They're <laughs> buying it because it's yeah. the title. Yeah, yeah. Um, I lived in Israel last year in Tel Aviv for six months, and I was in a like kind of a niche bookstore, and they had three David Foster Wallace books that had been translated into Hebrew. 
There was supposedly fun thing. Um, there was girl with curious hair, and there was brief interviews with hideous men, all with different covers that I've never seen in North America. Um, and the shop owner, I talked to him about it, and he said that they are working right now on a translation of Infinite Jest into Hebrew, which clearly would take like a lifetime to do. So it's pretty slow going. Um, but it's really cool to see different covers internationally that I never saw any of them online or anything, and they were just there in a bookstore all of a sudden. So it's a cool phenomenon. I think that it's also being translated into Greek. Oh, yeah? Hmm. I can't imagine the process of translating. I don't know if you guys have talked about that on the show before, but with all the slang and the puns and things that just wouldn't translate, <laughs> yeah. you know? It's like it's like a certain music, or I don't know how to describe it, but I, it must be a nightmare to try to translate. Well, yeah. especially into French, which, you know, it has mangled French in it intentionally. <laughs> and yeah. one of, you know, that went through two different French translators over 20 years arguing about this. Hmm. And it, I think that they really struggled with that aspect of do you correct his French how do you communicate the fact that he's trying to be funny with his French but right. leave it leave it in this sort of Quebecois French <laughs> which we all know is like is pretty weird right right as Canadians and like the Spanish and Italian versions came out pretty quickly after the book was published like the book was published in 96 and I think that the Italian version came out in 99 or something and mm. the uh, Spanish version came out in like 98 and there was a question of like did the guy really even have time to read the whole thing <laughs> and I think that in Spanish they left out like maybe even the end notes or like they left out like a large portion of the book oh wow interesting yeah, but they just ran it through the Babblefish website that precursor to <laughs> yeah, Google Translate close enough hit print <laughs> Um, at the Paris conference I went to last year, someone gave in French a talk about the French in Infinite Jest and the way that it's meant to be largely, um, it's largely puns and like intentional uh, intentional jokes. Um, but I didn't catch any of it because my French is, is very bad. I took it in school, but I don't really speak it at all. Um, but apparently her talk was really interesting and vibrant. And people got a lot out of it if they could speak French. So there has been some scholarly work done on that. Chris, this brings me back to a question for you, though. Of all of the editions of Wallace's work, at least in English and the United States that, that we've seen, what, what cover sort of resonates with you the most? Or, or what artwork that was officially done do you think you know, did justice to the book? I don't have a good answer for you off the top of my head. <laughs> um, honestly. I've never been totally thrilled by probably anything uh, that I've seen. So, I mean, not to say that they're bad, but it's just... No, I think that's a like fair said, answer. And I think that's mm -hmm. one reason why there is so much fan art out there. And people are sort of driven to illustrate, you know, these characters. And, you know, part of me was hoping that there would be more character illustration in the 20th anniversary editions of Infinite Jest. Really, the only one we saw was that uh, one of Madame Psychosis. Although the ones of, the one of Remy and Marath too. Yeah, that one of them overlooking Phoenix. Yeah. Hey, which brings us back to you're in Phoenix, right? And this a good deal of this <laughs> book takes place in Phoenix. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think uh, in the first episode of your podcast, uh, Dave used the term geographic posturing to to refer to the people at the Paris conference that had been to the Wallace Archives. Oh yeah, I think I said geologic um, posturing, like la layers okay. of scholarship, kind of. Oh, is that what you meant? Yeah, okay. that's what I meant. Yeah. Well, <laughs> All right. Well, I misunderstood. I'm going to do some geographic posturing and say that yeah, I do live in Phoenix, where um, some of the book tapes takes place, uh, specifically the Orin chapters. He's the kicker for the yeah. 
Phoenix Cardinals, which are now the Arizona Cardinals, which are, I think, the second best team in the league. Pretty good. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, Yeah, I don't really follow, but (laughs) (laughs) but I've been told. Yeah. Um, um, and yeah, I go then to Tucson three or four times a year. Um, where also, you know, the, the Marath and Steepley conversation takes place up on that mountain. And I always kind of try to decide which of these mountains Wallace was envisioning that conversation to take place on. Oh, yeah. Um, cause that's my favorite, I think, visual image in my head from the novel. Mm. Um, it's probably also one of my favorite pieces on the, on my site that I did just, you know, the, those two in silhouette on top of the mountain mm-hmm. above Tucson. Um, so I guess Wallace did his his post grad work at U of A down there, right? Yeah, yeah. And one time, you know, one thing that I don't know if we've talked about Dave in the past is that he had a visiting lecture there at one point was Edward Albee, who wrote Desert Solitaire and the Monkey Wrench Gang, and I don't know if you've read his stuff, but there's a lot there about um, the desert, which I think that he was cribbing from. And there's also uh, a book called Enemies with the Archdruid. Archdruid. Do you know this book? I don't know that. No, I don't know. Um, and it, it's basically like Encounters with the Archdruid. That's it. John McPhee. And it's it's an environmentalist book about this guy, David Brower. And it's him and sort of his arch enemy. And in a big part of the book, they're up on the side of a mountain in Arizona, like looking down over it. And I was thinking, like, he's got to have read this book. Like, it was a, it was a big book in the '70s, like an environmentalist movement about mm. the uh, Glen Canyon Dam and stuff. And but a lot of it is in car. You know, he has an enemy, right? There's one guy on one side of the environmental movement, and one guy on the other side who wants to build a dam. And it's clear the other guy's named Floyd Dominey. He's a commissioner of the Bureau of Reclamation. And this guy wants to build the dam. And this other guy, Brower, doesn't want to build the dam. And they sort of have these encounters with the Archdruid, right? Where they're talking about. And I was like, that's got to be some of the inspiration for this, where they're up on this mountain, like looking down on the land in the ah, West. Interesting. Um, also in that chapter, there's something I'm pretty sure he stole from Thomas Pynchon, um, where he references the, the Brockenspect oh, phenom. Yeah. I think I butchered the German there, where it's like this shadow <laughs> yes. that extends into the clouds. And I, I read uh, Gravity's Rainbow not long after Infinite Jest and encountered that again. I'm like, I'm pretty sure Wallace just lifted that directly from, from Gravity's Rainbow. And it's like broken specter or ghost or something. Isn't that what it translates to? Uh, yeah, because it's broken specter. And I think it's literally named after a mountain somewhere in Germany, hmm. which makes sense in the uh, case of um, Gravity's Rainbow because that takes place in Germany, those parts of it. Well, and it's also the image of like a, a bow, like a rainbow, right? Like a... Yeah. It's just like a little throwaway detail that I that I stuck in my head that I remembered. Yeah. It's such a weird name. Yeah, no, that's de- <laughs> that's definitely. And, and see, I, I, I thought that Pynchon had actually stolen that from someone else. Uh, probably so. It's like the Tarantino thing, right? It's like <laughs> you just keep stealing and stealing, <laughs> make something kind of unique. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know that he picked that up from Gravity's Rainbow, though. You're right. Yeah. So, uh, Chris, I'm really interested looking at your Infinite Jest movie posters right now uh, about your process. So you've got a ton of different films covered here, like The Joke. Uh, Blood Sister, One Tough Nun, Mobius Strips, Prenuptial Agreement of Heaven and Hell. Um, how many in total did you do and how long did they take you? Like how long of a, of a project was this overall? 
tell us a bit about that kind of stuff. Um, when I started, I had no idea of how long it would go um, with the scope. And I put up like a few, three or four up there. Mm-hmm. And the fact that people actually saw it and liked it, you know, kind of encouraged me to keep going. Yeah, yeah. Um, any one of those posters I could spend between two or three hours or sometimes more where I'm actually drawing. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are photoshopped, some of them are hand-drawn, some of them are photographed. Actually, I think what I ended up enjoying even more than the movie posters were some of the other um, the things that weren't the movie posters. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't the original intent of the project. It just kind of expanded that way. Right. Like the uh, the Escaton map that you have, for example, the green one. That's one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. I think that was my favorite one to work on. Oh, nice. I love that chapter. I, I just reread that so many times. Oh, it's so funny. Um, and it just doesn't make a lot of narrative sense the first time. You know, it's just kind of <laughs> random. Yeah. And so I sat down and kind of mapped it out and drew, you know, drew this diagram um, of the game and kind of the individual steps and what happened. Yeah. Which is, you know, not never, not really necessary to enjoy it because it's just ridiculous, funny. It's it's just comedy. Yeah. There's no like point to that chapter other than just to be somewhat entertaining, <laughs> I think. But I just I just love it as a you know, self-contained little thing. And I actually got the travel mug version of it for Christmas just last week from my sister. So now I have two of your of your designs on on coffee related <laughs> receptacles that's great carrying you around everywhere <laughs> well you know what's interesting too is that people i i you know i go kind of far back with this book chris and people have been trying to do something with the visual aspect of the book for since it came out and there was a it used to be on neighborhoodies.com you could get a, a, a hoodie and a shirt that said in it tennis academy and on the back you could get a uh, character's name and a number and th- there have been several people who have like dave said done the um the onin logo or you know sam potts did the character map and you know wh- what is it you think about the book is it just that there's so much going on i mean gravity's rainbow has a lot going on and it doesn't seem like it has this sort of visual fan component you know is it is it just that we're more aware of it? What, what do you think that it is? Um, something about, I guess, my background where um, my first job was in a movie theater. And my, one of my favorite things was on Thursday nights before the new movies came out was to take take down the old posters and put up the, the new ones. And my uh, my bedroom in high school was covered wall-to-wall in movie posters. Awesome. So when I... And I'll admit, I, I initially skipped the, uh, the footnote with all the... The, the filmography at first mm. and when i went back and i realized some so much of that is key to understanding a lot of the book yeah like it's like this this coded message from from james and Candenza about what his life was trying to communicate to his family yeah and i just i just love that there was so much as a, a graphic designer i'm not really a fine artist i'm not a painter you know draw or sculpt so it's pretty rare to become to have this like this source you know that's just all these things waiting to be brought to life. I think that was that was what inspired me at first, and I, I was kind of surprised that no one had done it before. Hmm. Well, and the play—it's sort of you know the play within the play, right? So within the book itself, there are all these other books, and I, I think there is always an interest, especially with bookish people, with the idea of a fictional book or a fictional movie. So, uh, you know, that that sort of picks up on, you know, exactly what you're saying, that there is this long list of movies within the book, which, you know, is is pretty appealing. And not a lot of other 
I don't know, novels have room, like you say, narratively to fit that in as sort of just, you know, a bonus track. <laughs> and there have been a lot of attempts, I should say, I don't know if you've seen them, but there have been a lot of attempts to make some of those films again. And in fact, my brother and I made one of them. It was the, the, the shampoo commercial, which I think is the, the first one in the filmography. Um, uh, and it was with a um, exhibition at the University of Virginia in I think in 2011 and that that they they opened it up sort of like a contest for people to make all the different um, films in the filmography and then Columbia University also did one where you could see I don't know the tea ceremony and they they did maybe a dozen selected uh Films from the filmography. Hmm. Medusa versus the Odalisk, I remember that one. And actually, the Onantiad, the um, Mario's Mario's film. Yeah, Yeah. I actually did um, help produce that here in Austin in 2009 at a theater. (laughs) And I have it on film. I have not, you know, I have not uploaded it ever, but it was a pretty pretty good. puppet company here called Trouble Puppet Theater and a guy named Connor Hopkin and he helped produce it. It was mostly with finger puppets. That's amazing. Please get that out there. I need to I need to pull that out. <laughs> so I mean that was my next question for you as you're talking about films, like have you ever uh, been interested in, you know, producing one of these? As a film? Yeah. I'm I'm a film lover. I'm not a filmmaker. Um <laughs> I, I do work, uh, my day job is to do uh, animations and video editing for a television show, but I kind of leave the filmmaking to other people. Um, <laughs> what show do you work on, Chris? Uh, it's called Right This Minute. It's a uh, viral video show. We're pretty much nationwide, about 90% of the country right now. It's entertainment. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like the kind of videos that uh, people would forward to you in your email or, you know, oh, send, yeah. you know post on Facebook, but we, we're kind of like ahead of the curve. We we have them uh, before they've gone viral. Oh, yeah, yeah. There was a guy. Did you guys meet the guy at the conference who, I think he was from New York, and he was making some of these films with his son, I think? I think he was recording the audio for most of the presentations. Did you meet him? Yeah, David. David Hom. Is that oh, what yeah. you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, I had a pretty extensive conversation with him on the last night about his work with them. And so it's cool to hear that people are trying to put this stuff on the screen. He was the guy that was recording most of the sessions, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't... Has he come out with that? He said he was going to post it online. Yeah, I haven't seen anything, so... He did the same in the first annual conference, too, and I thought it was pretty um, pretty postmodern that there's, like, a guy <laughs> recording the conference, but there never is a... Um, there never is a film made. Like, unfinished, <laughs> unreleased, you know? That's yeah. perfect. Because oh. I haven't seen any of those recordings come out yet from the conference. Oh, oh so. nor from 2014 either. So yeah, exactly. That. So I don't know what's happening with those, but it'd be great to have them. Um, so the, the one that we did, my brother and I, uh, a 30-second com- commercial was a parody of a shampoo commercial called Cage. It was the first one in the filmography. And mm. I think last... Maybe I, I don't know. In the past couple of episodes, Dave, we've talked about this uh, this movie called Cage. Do you remember this? So we were talking about uh, the, the experimental yeah, yeah. film, and it's on YouTube now. You can go and see um, the the film itself. But it, the the first entry there is really a um, 
it's an allusion to that film, which mm-hmm. uses all of these weird, you know, it's sort of a Stan Brackage looking film that uses these weird convex mirrors and stuff. It's a really interesting thing. But Chris, you said you're an animator. Like, do you, have you ever thought about animating some something from Infinite Jest? Uh, no, but I might consider that. Um, I'm always looking for new side projects to do. <laughs> there so, you go. Sounds like I, fun. I don't know if you saw, I, on the other day, I posted on Twitter, my friend here in Austin, LB, he did a thing called a motion graphics interpretation, which I think is all done in Flash. But it's, you know, like you say, it's not like he's drawing or painting anything, but it's it's all done in Flash. Maybe it was in October, November. It's been a while, but he, um, if you Google it, like Infinite Jest motion graphics interpretation, it comes up. And that, okay, that, I'll check that out. That's a pretty interesting thing. There was one really good video of the, the This Is Water speech um, with motion graphics. Did oh, you guys yes. see that? Yes. I, w- I wish I had done that. It was it was great. Was it the live, the live action one with real actors in yeah. the grocery store? That yeah, one? Had, yeah, yeah it had, some, had some motion graphics to it, too. Yeah, right. So what, what was really bad about that, I thought, is that it, it was on YouTube and it got shared everywhere. Like this mm-hmm. thing had like 4 million views or something. And then the estate sent a takedown notice, and they had to take it down. Hmm. And and I was like, why would you take this down if like four million people are watching it, and you know even one percent of them go out and buy the book? Isn't that a, a better marketing campaign than you did for <laughs> <Yeah>. the book? <laughs> yeah, Matt, we can expect a cease and desist for this podcast pretty soon, maybe. Hey? Oh, try me. <laughs> it's nice knowing you guys. Hmm. Yeah, thanks for being the last guest on the Great Concavity, Chris. <laughs> well. Oh. It's <laughs> kidding. Like we're here to celebrate Wallace and talk about his work and what it's meant to us and how people have have read it. And so I hope that it gets received uh, in that kind of way by anyone with a real stake in this kind of stuff. No, I mean that's that's a huge issue, right? Like the yeah. the the film, you know, the end of the tour faced that same issue, and yeah. you know the people who were clearly doing it as an homage to that speech. This is water. They were doing because they loved it. And they wanted to just illustrate it, and yet they got, they had to take it down. And I mean, the lesson there is you can't take anything off the internet, right? Like, I mean, people yeah. want to keep it up. There's going to be like a million mirrors that pop up immediately. <laughs> yeah. It actually just makes it uh, more intriguing if you heard it's been taken down. People right. are likely to seek it out. It's yeah, a dry sand effect. <laughs> so, Chris, we're um, going to ask if before we go tonight, if you have any final thoughts about the contest or about illustrating Infinite Jest. Um, well, I would say it's it's um, led me places that I wouldn't have expected. I would never expect to travel to Normal, Illinois, and be able to give a talk on it before and meet a bunch of great people. <laughs> that was fantastic. That was also my my first sort of academic conference going to. Oh, so nice. it's uh, um, this little thing I started a few years ago is has led me to meet a lot of great people. So I'm very grateful for that. That's cool. Well, we've really enjoyed, you know, getting to see the stuff that you have created and also the stuff that you have, you know, brought together on your blog, especially for, like I say, this thing with the 20th anniversary edition. If you hadn't brought all those together, you know, I'm pretty sure we never would have seen, you know, this many entries into that contest. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was happy to be able to do that. And uh, I feel like the blog has morphed into not so much my work anymore, but kind of um, soliciting work from other people hmm. and seeing what they're doing, which, which I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. The, uh, the Wallace conference has also had you design both of the logos for 14 and 2015 as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah that was so fun. you've done all kinds of cool stuff 
related to this? Yeah, I've carved out a very specific niche for myself. Like, <laughs> Science David Foster Wallace stuff. Yeah. Uh, I also learned from you that Whataburger is actually a real, a real chain of restaurants. Is oh, it in Arizona? Dave. Or was that from you, Matt? Oh, it's, of course it's in Arizona and Texas. Yeah, I don't know that. I'm, I'm Canadian. Uh, I'd never heard of Whataburger before I read this book. Uh, and and I went for like, I don't know, five years until I learned this last year. That's actually a real thing. You're killing and me, And my man. mind exploded. <laughs> There's, it's very old. I think it's, they haven't really changed their style much since like the 50s. Um, oh, yeah. It's like in and out kind of, like same kind of vibe. I, yeah. I actually like yeah. really love Whataburger. And <laughs> I can really? tell you, the, yeah, I can tell you the first one I think opened in 1951 in Corpus Christi, Texas. Oh, wow. So it's it's founded. In, it's a Texas chain, and people in Texas especially love Whataburger. Huh? You're a historian, then. I will have to say, as someone who has tried a lot of different fast foods, it is probably the worst fast food I've ever had. Oh, you're so wrong, Chris. <laughs> you're so so wrong. <laughs> you're so wrong, dude. It's, uh, I just can't so, have good breakfast. I used to get off at like 11 p.m. and then we start serving breakfast. Uh, I, there's one I can walk to from my house. It would take me five minutes to walk to, and I never go. I'm gonna have to reevaluate our whole conversation now. <laughs> so Matt will be receiving a check in the mail from Whataburger for his promotional, and uh, Chris will be receiving a cease and desist letter pretty soon. I wish if Whataburger is listening, please, I'll send you my address. They know me. Uh, no, it's a real place, Dave. And you know, it's funny is I've had people come here to Austin to visit the um, archive, and I've given them a tour of Austin and. A couple of them have like pointed out the window. Oh my God, there's a water burger! And I was like, "Yes, yeah, so are you hungry or what?" And they're like, "No, it's a real place." And I was like, "I just take it for granted, you know, that it's, it's yeah, not, it's funny. not like just a made-up brand or something." Well, yeah, you know, that's awesome. Wallace had a notoriously bad diet, and I can imagine him eating yeah. there quite a bit. Yeah, at least when he was here in Arizona. Oh yeah, but uh, I just watched the end of the tour again for the second time uh, last week with with my wife, and she was like appalled by the scenes of them just in the Seven Eleven or whatever, just like just getting so much junk food and just ramming it down their throats. She's like, "Did he really eat like that?" And I was like, "Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of the thing that he talks about a lot." She was kind of like <laughs> taken aback by that a bit. Oh, there's two Waterburger references in the movie. Yeah, there's there's like a thing on his fridge, right on the, the side of the fridge. There's a fridge, you know, and that? then the. There's a post-it note at the end that's oh, you know, yeah. when he sends Lipsky back the shoe and he says yours, I presume, and that's on a yeah. Whataburger post-it note. Oh, so. I, I didn't catch that. That's cool. Um, speaking of people coming to the archive in Austin, Matt, we recently had a, a listener um, whose handle on Twitter is Madam Psychosis. She posted that she was going to the archive. Did you get a chance to connect with her at all? No, I didn't, but I, okay. I, I leave it as a standing um, open <laughs> invitation Um to, if you are coming to the archive, feel free to reach out to me on email or on Twitter, and I would love to meet up and chat with you when you're in Austin. That's great. Very cool. So, Chris, going forward, do you have any? Are there any plans you have for future projects that relate to Wallace or um, things in the Wallace universe that you're excited about that are sort of coming up in 2016? Uh, well, I'm currently working on an album cover. A guy, I think you guys know Brad Cheeseman. He's a Toronto jazz musician. He wrote a suite of songs. Yeah. Um, he's going to release an EP here pretty soon uh, based on yeah. Infinite Jest. So right. I'm working on right now with him. Uh, you and I had sort of suggested or batted around the idea of making an Eschaton board game, which seems a little yeah. bit crazy. <laughs> but, again, very niche audience, but it seems like it would be fun. 
Yeah, for sure. Wow, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm big into board games, and so I, I got thinking about what would it be like to design a board game based on Eschaton, and then you'd done artwork for it, which I discovered at the conference that that was you were that guy, and then so the wheels started turning for that. So that would be fun. Oh, I love it. Maybe one day. <laughs> I love the yeah, idea. Maybe one day. <laughs> Speaking of Brad Cheeseman, at, we were both in the Atlanta airport uh, catching the flight to Normal. We'd both been redirected from Toronto and. We were both in the line and we were next to each, sort of next to each other in the line. And in this room of people, I kind of like was eyeing him before and was like, I wonder if that guy's going to the Wallace conference. And I turned to him, looked at him when we were in the line. And I was like, this is maybe going to sound weird, but is there any chance you're going to the David Foster Wallace conference? He's like, yeah, I am. How do you know? I was like, I just, just like, just a hunch based on like your appearance. Wow. <laughs> and then, so that was really funny. And we were both Canadians, so we had lots to talk about. I did not know that story. I know you guys were on the same flight. I didn't know you met like that. Yeah, lots yeah, to talk about. Yeah, lots to talk about. Yeah, we sat like right close to each other on the plane and talked a lot. It was great. So, Dave, before we sign off, too, I want you to uh, give a plug for Infinite Winter. Yeah. Okay. So we've recently been contacted by InfiniteWinter dot org. This is a project coming up that's very similar to the uh, to what happened a couple years ago with Infinite Summer. Um, there is going to be a kind of community read of Infinite Jest that ranges from January 31st to May 2nd. And I think the plan is to read about 75 pages of Infinite Jest per week. And then there are going to be some guest bloggers who every day one of the get six or seven guest bloggers will be writing about their impressions, reactions to that section of the book and we've been asked at the great concavity to contribute to that so i'll be writing a blog for that each week and matt i think you will be writing a, a how-to guide at the outset of this project is that right uh, how I'll to be read infinite jest a, a couple of different things yeah yeah awesome so we're kind of uh we've kind of been in touch with them about that and so if you've never read infinite jest but have always wanted to or if you want to reread infinite jest here's a great opportunity to do it with community of other people uh, and then have some lots of dialogue about it through message boards and other things Twitter uh, if you want to check that out go to infinitewinter.org and they're also on Twitter at Ennet House is the handle for Infinite Winter or if you just search Infinite Winter on Twitter that'll come up and you can find out more information uh, about that so that starts on January 31st coming up soon um, so that's that and any final thoughts from you guys about any of this stuff? 20th anniversary? I'm looking forward to seeing the book in print. You know, I, I'm optimistic it'll look good in print. Yeah. Optimism is, is good, Matt. Thanks. So I have a, a question for you guys, which may be completely irrelevant. Feel free to cut it out if you don't think it's cool. But I want to know what you guys read as like your comfort food. Like, I know one of you guys got to be a Twilight fan, right? I mean, like, let's, let's low-brow low easy <laughs> entertainment. What do you, what do you go to? Um, f do you want to take that first, Matt? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a very like. I read constantly, like not to sound like a jerk, but I read all the time. Like I don't really watch TV. I don't really go to films or concerts that much. I go to <laughs> I read, right? So, but for me, like comfort food lately has been um, the Carl Ove Knausgaard books. My oh, yeah. you know my struggles one through four. I really whenever. You know, I'm not reading something for work or for to read it for a book review or the podcast or something. I read it. I, I just want to read for myself. I've been reading that. Um, uh, I, I recently, not to be confused with Mein Kampf. No, 
Well, it is. Yeah, you know, it is called Mein Kampf in Norwegian, in fact. Right. Um, long story. <laughs> Apparently, he doesn't even address that till the last sixth volume. So. Um, oh, yeah. But then I also liked the Elena Ferrante books. I don't know if you were familiar with her, but... Oh, yeah. You've mentioned her before. Yeah. And like I say, this is not... It's not Twilight-level stuff. It's I think it's really literature, but I, I just consume it like you would if you were into like the star wars novelizations or something like to me that's just like i would sit down it's very pleasurable you know pleasurable mm. for me to read that stuff mm. Mm. i read the um the hunger games trilogy a few years ago or whatever part of, partly because i'm a high school english teacher and so i'm always looking for stuff you know that's relevant to to the kids um and i thought it was you know it was fine it was fun um but i don't really read a lot of like stuff like that too often um i haven't really read a whole lot actually in the last year because of doing work for the masters i'm reading a lot of secondary criticism on wallace um i have been reading neuromancer by william gibson lately um which is a novel from the mid 80s that's uh, like a cyberpunk futuristic novel about hackers and corporations sort of um because i got it super into this card game this year called netrunner that's sort of predicated on that universe um but other than that, I can't think of anything too too comforty. How about you, Chris? What do you? What's your go-to? Um, I've been reading Stephen King books since I was about ten years old, and he keeps he keeps writing. Oh, yeah, them. Nice. I keep reading them, so that's that's yeah. it's almost very easy for me to, to get into. You know, yeah. I, I I'm a big Stephen King fan, and I want to hear because I I haven't really read them all lately, but I did read um, Mr. Mercedes and eleven twenty two sixty three, which is about to be made into a james franco tv series did you what did, oh yeah what did you think of those two um mr mercedes was okay that was very much like kind of pulpy you know it was just it was okay it's formulaic right? um the 112263 i thought was a stupid premise but i actually really enjoyed the book the more the, the deeper i got into it i was like wow this is actually really good um and if we're still on stephen king i think the most the most sort of recent one would be under the dome which i love the book the tv show was terrible but the I love oh, the book. It? <laughs> the book is huge, right? It's like twelve. Yeah, it's pages. one of those things like it or the stand, you know, like he used to write. I like really get deep into it. Yeah, I have to go back to Under the Dome. I, I picked it up and then I was like, Shit, I, I just don't have time for this right now. I need to. I need to pick it back up when I have time. Hmm. And Chris, you're a big Star Wars fan as well. Yeah, and I've actually unfortunately read a couple of the Star Wars books this year that uh, weren't, uh, uh, unfortunately weren't that, weren't that read great. Them, yeah, I can't help it. <laughs> Uh, that's a shame. Well, if if you find a great one, like let us know because I, I would like to to read it. <laughs> one of it's really good. You, you know, know, I I don't think every movie should be turned into a book, and I don't think every book should be turned into a movie. And I think sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a fair assessment, Chris. It's been great chatting with both of you guys. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, Chris, thank you so much for coming on to the Great Concavity. We've uh, we've really enjoyed your your creative approaches to Infinite Jest over the last few years and are really excited to see where you go with it in the future. So thanks again so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Anytime. Finally, our sort of housekeeping stuff. Our podcast icon is by Robin O'Neill. Our music is Instant Disassembly by the band Parquet Courts. And if you want to get in touch with us on social media, we are on Twitter, at Concavity Show, as well as on Instagram. If you'd like to send us an email, we are concavityshow at gmail.com. 